Section 7 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Eminent Painters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Eminent Painters by Albert Hubbard. Messonnier. I never hesitate about scraping out the work of days and beginning afresh, so as to satisfy myself and try to do better. Ah, that better, which one feels in one's soul, and without which no true artist is ever content. Others may approve and admire, but that counts for nothing, compared with one's own feeling of what ought to be. Messonnier's Conversations Life in this world is a collecting, and all the men and women in it are collectors. The question is, what will you collect? Most men are intent on collecting dollars. Their waking hours are taken up with inventing plans, methods, schemes, whereby they may secure dollars from other men, to gather as many dollars as possible, and to give out as few, is the desideratum. But when you collect one thing, you always incidentally collect others. The fisherman who casts his net for shad usually secures a few other fish, and once in a while a turtle, which enlarges the mesh to suit and gives sweet liberty to the shad. To focus exclusively on dollars is to secure jealousy, fear, vanity, and a vaulting ambition that may claw its way through the mesh and let your dollars slip into the yeasty deep. Ragged Haggard and his colleague, Cave of the Winds, collect bacteria, while the fashionable young men of the day, with a few exceptions, are collecting headaches, regrets, weak nerves, tremens, paresis, death. Of course, we shall all die. I will admit that. And further, we may be a long time dead. I will admit that. And moreover, we may be going through the world for the last time. As to that, I do not know. But while we are here, it seems the part of reason to devote our energies to collecting that which brings us much quiet joy to ourselves and as a little annoyance to others as possible. My heart goes out to the collector, in the soul of the collector of old books, swords, pistols, brocades, prints, clocks, and book plates. There is only truth. If he gives you his friendship, it is because you love the things that he loves. He has no selfish wish to use your good name to further his own petty plans. He only asks that you shall behold, and beholding, your eyes shall glow and your heart warm within you. Inasmuch as we live in the age of the specialist, one man often collects books on only one subject. Dante, for instance. Another, nothing but volumes printed at Venice. Another, works concerning the stage. And still another devotes all his spare time to securing tobacco pipes. And I am well aware that the man who for a quarter of a century industriously collects snuff boxes, has a supreme contempt for the man who collects both snuff boxes and clocks. And in this does the specialist reveal that his normal propensity to collect has degenerated. 
That is to say, it has refined itself into an abnormality and from the innocent desire to collect has shifted off into a selfish wish to outrival. The man who collects many things with easy, natural leanings towards, say, spoons, is pure in heart and free from guile. But when his soul centers on spoons exclusively, he has fallen from his high estate and is simply possessed of a lust for ownership. He wants to own more peculiar spoons than any other man on earth. Such a one stirs up wrath and rivalry and is the butt and byword of all others who collect spoons. Prosperous, practical, busy people sometimes wonder why other folks build cabinets with glass fronts and strong locks and therein store postage stamps, bits of old silks, autographs, and books that are very precious only when their leaves are uncut. And so I will here endeavor to explain. At the same time, I despair of making my words intelligible to any but those who are collectors, or mayhap, to those others who are in the varioloid stage. Then possibly you say, I had better not waste good paper and ink by recording information, since collectors know already, and those who are without the pale have neither eyes to see nor hearts to incline. But the simple fact is, the proposition that you comprehend on first hearing was yours already. For how can you recognize a thing as soon as it comes into view if you have never before seen it? You have thought my thought yourself, or else your heart would not beat fast and your lips say, yes, yes, when I voice it. Truth is in the air, and when your head gets up into the right stratum of atmosphere, you breathe it in. You may not know that you have breathed it in until I come along and write it out on this blank sheet, and then you read it and say, Yes, your hand, that is surely so. I knew it all along. And so then, if I tell you a thing you already know, I confer on you the great blessing of introducing to yourself and of giving you the consciousness that you know. And to know you know is power. And to feel the sense of power is to feel the sense of oneness with the source of power. Let's see, what was it then that we were talking about? Oh yes, collectors and collecting. Men collect things because these things stir imagination and link them with the people who once possessed and used these things. Thus, through imagination, is the dead past made again to live and throb and pulse with life. Man is not the lonely creature that those folks with bad digestions sometimes try to have us believe. We are brothers not only to all who live, but to all who have gone before. And so we collect the trifles that once were valuables for other men, and by the possession of these trifles are we bound to them. These things stimulate imagination, stir the sympathies, and help us forget the cramping bounds of time and space that so often hedge us close around. The people near us may be sordid, stupid, mean, or more likely they are weary and worn with the battle for mere food, shelter, and raiment, or they are depressed by that undefined brooding fear which civilization exacts as payment for benefits for God. 
so their better selves are subdued. But through fancy's flight, we can pick our companions out of the company of saints and sinners who have long turned to dust. I have the book plates of Holbein and Hogarth, and I have a book once owned by Rembrandt. And so I do not say Holbein and Hogarth and Rembrandt were. I say they are. And thus the collector confuses the glorious dead and the living in one fairy company. And although he may detect varying degrees of excellence, for none does he hold contempt. Of none is he jealous. None does he envy. From them he asks nothing. Upon him they make no demands. In the collector's cast of mind, there is something very childlike and ingenuous. My little girl has a small box of bright bits of silk thread that she hoards very closely. Then she possesses certain pieces of calico, nails, curtain rings, buttons, spools, and fragments of china, all of which are very dear to her heart. And why should they not be? For with them she creates a fairy world, wherein are only joy and peace and harmony and light. Quite an improvement on this. Yes, dearie, quite. Ernest Mezzanier, the artist, began collecting very early. He has told us that he remembers, when five years of age, of going with his mother to market and collecting rabbits' ears and feet, which he would take home and carefully nail up on the wall of the garret. And it may not be amiss to explain here that the rabbit's foot as an object of superstitious veneration has no real place outside of the United States of America, and this only south of Mason and Dixon's line. The Mazinaire's lad's collection of rabbit's ears increased until he had nearly colors enough to run the chromatic scale. Then he collected pigeons' wings in like manner, and if you have ever haunted French marketplaces, you know how natural a thing this would be for a child. The boy's mother took quite an interest in his amusements and helped him to spread the wings out and arrange the tail's fan shape on the walls. They had long strings of buttons and boxes of spools in partnership, and when they would go up the Seine on little excursions on Sunday afternoons, they would bring back rich spoils in the way of swan feathers, butterflies, snake feeders, and tiny shells. Then once they found a bird's nest, and as the mother bird had deserted it, they carried it home. That was a red-letter day, for the garret collection had increased to such an extent that a partition was made across the corner of a room by hanging up a strip of cloth and all the things in that corner belonged to Ernest. His mother said so. Ernest's mother seems to have had a fine, joyous, childlike nature, so she fully entered into the life of her boy. He wanted no other companion. In fact, this mother was little better herself than a child in years. She was only 16 when she bore him. They lived at Lyon then, but three years later moved to Paris. Her temperament was poetic, religious, and her spirit had in it a touch of superstition, which is the case with all really excellent women. But this sweet playtime was not for long. The mother died in 1825, aged 24 years. 
I suppose there is no greater calamity that can befall a child than to lose his mother. Still, nature is very kind, and for Ernest Mezinier, there always remained firm, clear-cut memories of a slight, fair-haired woman with large, open gray eyes who held him in her arms, sang to him, and rocked him to sleep each night as the darkness gathered. He lived over and over again those few sunshiny excursions up the river, and he knew all the reeds and flowers and birds she liked best, and the places where they had landed from the boat and lunched together were forever to him sacred spots. But the death of his mother put a stop for a time to his collecting. The sturdy housekeeper who came to take the mother's place speedily cleared the truck out of the corner and forbade the bringing of any more feathers and rabbit's feet into her house. Well, I guess so. The bird's nest, long grasses, reeds, shells, and pigeons' wings were tossed straightway into the fireplace and went soaring up the chimney in smoke. The destruction of the collection didn't kill the propensity to collect, however, any more than you can change a man's opinions by burning his library. It only dampened the desire for a time. It broke out again after a few years and continued for considerably more than half a century. There was a house at Poissy, full to the roof tiles of books, marvels, bronzes, and innumerable curios, gathered from every corner of the earth, and a palace at Paris, filled in like manner, for which Ernest Messonnier had expended more than a million francs. In the palace at Paris, when the owner was near his threescore years and ten, he took from a locker a Morocco case, and opening it, showed his friend Dumas a long curl of yellow hair, and then he brought out a curious old white silk dress, and said to the silent Dumas, This curl was cut from my mother's head after her death, and this dress was her wedding gown. A few days after this, Messonnier wrote these words in his journal. It is the 20th of February, the morning of my 70th birthday. What a long time to look back upon. This morning, at the hour when my mother gave me birth, I wished my first thoughts to be of her. Dear Mother, how often have the tears risen to my eyes at the remembrance of you. It was your absence, the longing I had for you, that made you so dear to me. The love of my heart goes out to you. Do you hear me, Mother, calling and crying for you? How sweet it must be to have a mother, I say to myself. I would have every man rich, said Emerson then he might know the worthlessness of riches. Every man should have a college education in order to show him how little the thing is really worth. The intellectual kings of the earth have seldom been college-bred. Napoleon ever regretted the lack of instruction in his early years, and in the minds of such men as Abraham Lincoln and Ernest Mesonnier, there usually lingers the suspicion that they have dropped something out of their lives. I'm not a college man. Ask Seward, said Lincoln, when someone questioned him as to the population of Alaska. The remark was merry jest, of course, but as in all jests there lurks a grain of truth, 
so did their here. At the height of Messonnier's success, when a canvas from his hand commanded a larger price than the work of any other living artist, he exclaimed, Oh, if only I had been given the advantages of a college training. If he had, it is quite probable that he never would have painted better than his teacher. Discipline might have reduced his daring genius to neutral salts and taken all that fine audacity from his brush. He was a natural artist. He saw things clearly and in detail. He had the heart to feel, and he longed for the skill to express that which he saw and felt. And when the desire is strong enough, it brings the thing, and thus is prayer answered. Mesonier, while but a child, set to work making pictures. He declared he would be an artist, and in spite of his father's attempts to shame him out of his whim and to starve him into a more practical career, his resolution stuck. He worked in a drugstore and drew on the wrapping paper, then with this artist a few days, and then with that. He tried illustrating and finally a bold stand was made in a little community formed that decided on storming the salon. There is something pathetic in that brotherhood of six young men, binding themselves together, swearing they would stand together and aid each other in producing great art. The dead seriousness of the scheme has a peculiar sophomore quality. They were Steinhau, Trimolet, Daumier, Daubigny, Deschamps, and Messonnier, all aged about twenty, strong, sturdy, sincere, and innocently ignorant, all bound they would be artists. Two of these young men were sign painters. The others did odd jobs illustrating and filled in the time at anything which chance offered. When one got an invitation out to dinner, he would go and furtively drop biscuit and slices of meat into his lap, and then slyly transfer them to his waistcoat pockets, so as to take them to his less fortunate brethren. They haunted the galleries, made themselves familiar with catalogues, criticized without stint, knew all about current prices, and were able to point out the great artists of Paris when they passed proudly up the street. They sketched eternally, formed small wax models, and made great preparations for masterpieces. The reason they did not produce the masterpieces was because they did not have money to buy brushes, paints, and canvas. Neither did they have funds to purchase food to last until the thing was done, and it is difficult to produce great art on half rations. So they formed the Brotherhood, and one midnight swore eternal fealty. They were to draw lots. The lucky member was to paint, and the other five were to support him for a month. He was to be supplied his painting outfit and to be absolutely free from all responsibility as to the bread-and-butter question for a whole month. Tremolet was the first lucky man. He set diligently to work and dined each evening on a smoking mutton chop with a bottle of wine at a respectable restaurant. The five stood outside and watched him through the window. They dined when and where they could. His picture grew apace, and in three weeks was completed. It was entitled, Sisters of Charity Giving Out Soup to the Poor. 
The work was of a good machine-made quality, not good enough to praise, nor bad enough to condemn. It was like Tomlinson of Berkeley Square. On account of the peculiar subject with which it dealt, it found favor with the worthy priest, who bought it and presented it to a convent. This so inflated Rimelet that he suggested it would be a good plan to keep right on with the arrangement, but the five objected. Steinhau was next appointed to feed the Vestal fire. His picture was so-so, but would not sell. Daubigny came next, and lived so high that inspiration got clogged. Fatty degeneration of the cerebrum set in, and after a week he ceased to paint, doing nothing but dream. When the turn of the fourth man came, Mazinier had concluded that the race must be won by one and one, and his belief in individualism was further strengthened by an order for a group of family portraits, with a goodly retainer in advance. Straightway he married Steinhold's sister, with whom he had been some weeks in love, and the others feeling agreed that an extra mouth to feed, with danger of more, had been added to the commune, declared the compact void. Trimolet still thought well of the arrangement, though, and agreed, if Mezinier would support him, to secure fame and fortune for them both. Mezinier declined the offer with thanks and struck boldly out on his own account. The woman who had so recklessly agreed to share his poverty must surely have had faith in him, or our very young people who marry incapable of either faith or reason. Never mind, she did not hold the impulsive young man back. She couldn't. Nothing but death could have stayed such ambition. His will was unbending, and his ambition never tired. He was an athlete in strength, and was fully conscious that to be a good animal is the first requisite. He swam, rode, walked, and could tire out any of his colleagues at swordplay or skittles. But material things were scarce those first few years of married life, and once when the table had bread, but no meat nor butter, he took the entire proceeds of a picture and purchased a suit of clothing of the time of Louis the Grand, not to wear, of course, simply to put in the collection. Small wonder is it that, for some months after, when he would walk out alone, the fond wife would caution him thus, Now, Ernest, do not go through that old clothes market. You know your weakness. I have no money, so you need not worry, he would gaily reply. Of those times of pinching want, he has written, As to happiness, is it possible to be wretched at twenty, when one has health, a passion for art, three passes for the Louvre, an eye to see, a heart to feel, and sunshine gratis. But poverty did not last long. Pictures such as this young man produced must attract attention anywhere. He belonged to no school, but simply worked away after his own fashion. What he was bound to do was to produce a faithful picture, sure, clear, strong, vivid. He saw things clearly, and his sympathies were acute as is shown in every canvas he produced. Mezinier had the true artistic conscience. He was incapable of putting out an average, 
unobjectionable picture. It must have positive excellence. There is a difference, said he, between a successful effort and a work of love. He painted only in the loving mood. No greater blessing than the artistic conscience can come to any worker in art, be he sculptor, writer, singer, or painter. Hold fast to it, and it shall be your compass in time when the sun is darkened. To please the public is little, but to satisfy your other self, that self that leans over your shoulder and watches your every thought and deed, is much. No artistic success worth having is possible unless you satisfy that other self. But like the moral conscience, it can be dallied with until the grieved spirit turns away and the wretch is left to his fate. Mesonier never hesitated to erase a whole picture when it did not satisfy his inward sense. Customers might praise and connoisseurs offered to buy. It made no difference. I have someone who is more difficult to please than you, he would say. I must satisfy myself. The fine intoxication that follows good artistic work is the highest joy that mortals ever know. But once let a creative artist lower his standard and give the world the mere product of his brain, with heart left out, that man will hate himself for a year and a day. He has sold his soul for a price. Joy has flown, and bitterness is his portion. Mesonier never trifled with his compass. To the last, he headed for the pole star. The early domestic affairs of Messonnier can best be guessed from his oft-repeated assertion that the artist should never marry. To produce great work, art must be your mistress, he said. You must be married to your work. A wife demands unswerving loyalty as her right, and a portion of her husband's time she considers her own. This is proper with every profession but that of art. The artist must not be restrained, nor should even a wife come between him and his art. The artist must not be judged by the same standards that are made for other men. Why? Simply because when you begin to tether him, you cramp his imagination and paralyze his hand. The priest and artist must not marry, for it is too much to expect any woman to follow them in their flight and they have no moral right to tie themselves to a woman and then ask her to stay behind. From this and many similar passages in the conversations, it is clear that Messonnier had no conception of the fact that a woman may possibly keep step with her mate. He simply never considered such a thing. A man's opinions concerning womankind are based upon the knowledge of the women he knows best. We cannot apply Hamilton's remark concerning Turner to Messonnier. Hamilton said that throughout Turner's long life, he was lamentably unfortunate in that he never came under the influence of a strong and good woman. Messonnier associated with good women, but he never knew one with the spread of spiritual wing sufficiently to fit her to be his companion. There is a minor key of loneliness and heart hunger running through his whole career. Possibly, in the wisdom of Providence, this was just what he needed to urge him on to higher and nobler ends. He never knew peace, and the rest for which he sighed 
slipped him at the very last. I'm tired, so tired, he sighed again and again in those later years, when he had reached the highest pinnacle. And still he worked. It was his only rest. Bezinia painted very few pictures of women, and in some miraculous way, skipped that stage in aesthetic evolution wherein most artists affect the nude. In his whole career, he never produced a single Diana, nor a Susanna at the bath. He had no artistic sympathy with Lita and the Swan, and once, when Della Roche chided him for painting no pictures of women, he was so ungallant as to say, My dear fellow, men are much more beautiful than women. During the last decade of his life, Mezinier painted but one portrait of a woman, and to America belongs the honor. The sitter was Mrs. J.W. McKay of California. As all the world knows, Mrs. McKay refused to accept the canvas. She declared the picture was no likeness, and further, she would not have it for a gift. So you do not care for the picture, asked the great artist. Me? Well, I guess not. Not that picture. Very well, madame. I think, I think I'll keep it for myself. I'll place it on exhibition. And the great artist looked out of the window in an absent-minded way and hummed a tune. This put another phase on the matter. Mrs. McKay winced and paid the price, which rumor says was somewhere between ten and $25,000. She took the little canvas in her carriage and drove away with it. And what became of the only portrait of a woman painted by Maisonier during his later years, nobody knew but Mrs. McKay, and Mrs. McKay never told. Maisonier once explained to a friend that his offense consisted in producing a faithful likeness of the customer. The McKay incident did not end when the lady paid the coin and accepted the goods. Maisonier, by the haughtiness of his manner, his artistic independence, and most of all, by his unpardonable success, had been sowing dragon's teeth for half a century. And now armed enemies sprang up and sided with the woman from California. They made it an international episode. Less excuses have involved nations in war in days agone. But the enemies of Messonier did not belong alone to America although here every arm was braced and every tongue wagged to vindicate the cause of our countrywoman. In Paris, the whole art world was divided into those who sided with Messonnier and those who were against him. Cafés echoed with the sounds of wordy warfare. The columns of all magazines and newspapers bulged with heated argument. Newsboys cried extra on the street and bands of students paraded the boulevards singing songs in praise of Mrs. McKay and in dishonor of Messonnier, the pretender. The assertion was made again and again that Messonnier had fed sham art upon the public and by means of preposterous prices and noisy puffing had hypnotized the world. They called him the artist of the infinitely little, King of Lilliput, and challenged anyone to show where he had thrown heart and high emotion into his work. Studies of coachmen, smokers, readers, soldiers, housemaids, chess players, 
cavaliers and serenaders were not enough upon which to base an art reputation. The man must show that he had moved men to high endeavor, said the detractors. A fund was started to purchase the McKay portrait so as to do the very thing that Messonnier had threatened to do, but dare not, place the picture on exhibition. To show the picture, the enemy said, would be to prove the artist's commonplace quality, and not only this, but would prove the man a rogue. They declared he was incapable of perceiving the good qualities in a sitter, and had consented for a price to portray a person whom he disliked, and as a result, of course, had produced a caricature, and then had blackmailed his patron into paying an outrageous sum to keep the picture from the public. The argument sounded plausible, and so the battle raged, just as it has in reference to Zola. The tide of Mezinier's prosperity began to ebb. Prospective buyers kept away. Those who had given commissions canceled them. Mezinier's friends saw that something must be done. They inaugurated a Mezinier vindication by making an exhibition of 155 Mezinier's and the public was invited to come and be the jury. Art lovers from England wanted bodies, and all Paris filed through the gallery, as well as a goodly portion of provincial France. But the side of each canvas stood a gendarme to protect it from a possible fanatic whose artistic hate could not be restrained. To a great degree, this exhibition brought feeling to a normal condition. Maisonier was still a great artist, Yet he was human, and his effects were now believed to be gotten by natural methods. But there was a lull in the mad rush to secure his wares. The Vanderbilts grew lukewarm. Titled connoisseurs from England were not so anxious, and Mrs. McKay sat back and smiled through her tears. Messonnier had expended over a million francs on his house in the Boulevard Marbouchers in Paris and nearly as much on the country seat at Poissy. These places were kingly in their appointments, and such as only the state should attempt to maintain. For a single man, by the work of his right hand, to keep them up was too much to expect. Messonnier's success had been too great. As a collector, he had overdone the thing. Only poor men, or those of moderate incomes, should be collectors, but then the joy of sacrifice is theirs. Charles Lamb's covetous looking on the book when it was read, daily for months, meanwhile hoarding his pay, and at last one Saturday night swooping down and carrying the volume home to Bridget in triumph, is the true type. But money had come to Messonnier by hundreds of thousands of francs, and often sums were forced upon him as advance payments, he lived royally and never imagined that his hand and brain could lose their cunning or the public be fickle. The fact that a vindication had been necessary was galling. The great man grew irritable and his mood showed itself in his work. His colors grew hard and metallic and there were angles in his lines where there should have been joyous curves. Debts began to press. He painted less and busied his mind with reminiscence the solace of old age. And then it was that he dictated to his wife 
The Conversations. The book reveals the quality of his mind with rare fidelity and shows the power of this second wife fully to comprehend him. Thus did she disprove some of the unkind philosophy given to the world by her liege. But the talk in the conversations is of an old man in whose heart was a tinge of bitterness. Yet the thought is often lofty and the comment clear and full of flashing insight. It is the book of Ecclesiastes over again, written in a minor key, with a little harmless gossip added for filling. Maisonier died in Paris on the 21st of January, 1891, age 76 years. The canvas known as 1807, which is regarded as Maisonier's masterpiece, has a permanent home in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. The central figure is Napoleon, at whose shrine the great artist loved to linger. The 1807 occupied the artist's time in town for 15 years and was purchased by A.T. Stewart for $60,000. After Mr. Stewart's death, his art treasures were sold at auction, and this canvas was bought by Judge Henry Hilton and presented to the city of New York. There are in all about 75 pictures by Maisonier owned in America. Several of his pieces are in the Vanderbilt Collection, Others are owned by collectors in Chicago, Cleveland, and St. Louis. There are various glib sayings to the effect that the work of great men is not appreciated until after they are dead. This may be so and it may not. It depends upon the man and the age. Messonnier enjoyed full half a century of the highest and most complete success that was ever bestowed upon an artist. The strong intellect and marked personality of the man won him friends wherever he chose to make them, and it probably would have been better for his art if a degree of public indifference had been his portion of those earlier years. His success was too great. The calm judgment of posterity can never quite endorse the plaudits paid the living man. He is one of the greatest artists the 19th century has produced, but that his name can rank among the great artists of all time is not at all probable. William Michael Rossetti has summed the matter up well by saying, Perfection is so rare in this world that when we find it, we must pause and pay it the tribute of our silent admiration. It is very easy to say that Messonnier should have put in this and omitted that. Had he painted differently, he would have been someone else. The work is faultless, and such genius as he showed must ever command the homage of those who know by experience the supreme difficulty of having the hand materialize the conceptions of the mind. And yet Messonnier's conceptions outmatched his brush. He was greater than his work. He was a great artist, and better still, a great man. Proud, frank, fearless, and conscientious. End of section 7